0: apologize for uh, the sound issue. Sounds like we may have demon possession going on up there or something. So we'll cast that out this week and get that fixed. Um, But this past week you probably saw a shocking video. There's a shocking video of Dr. Deborah Nukatola who is the chief doctor for Planned Parenthood. And she's sitting down and she's talking with who she believes to be potential clients or potential customers. And she's explaining to them the nature of what they do. And she says that it is becoming very common for research companies to come to them and to want to purchase the organs of these unborn children that have been slain. And so what they do is she gathers with her team of people before the start of the day, And they decide and they work to fill orders for companies like a parts house filling orders for a mechanic. And in language that is so grotesque and so calloused that it's a shock to the system. She says, if they need a lung, I'm not going to crush that part. I'll crush below it or I'll crush above it. If they need the the head, we can actually move the baby into the breech position so that we are able to remove all of the head without damaging it. And she says it all as she crunches on salad and washes it down with water. To anyone, it is such a gross violation of the conscience that as you watch the video, it leaves you utterly speechless it's such a violation of the, of, the, of the conscience of humanity. It's such a, a blatant atrocity that you, you listen and you just don't even know how to respond. I kept assuming that it was a fake video until numerous sources validated it as being fair, including Planned Parenthood themselves, apparently. In a world filled with such human atrocities, In a world filled with, in a society filled with, uh, the redefinition of marriage by five Supreme Court justices, in a society in which children are being put out there so that their organs can be consumed by companies, in a society that is clearly devolving, how is a Christian to think? How is a Christian to see it and and process it and understand it? How is a Christian to relate to it? I think what we should see, brothers and sisters, is that the abortions and homosexual marriage and all of the global atrocities happening right now at this very moment are all not the problems in and of themselves, but they are symptoms of a greater problem. They're symptoms of a greater disease. This morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. As we come to Matthew chapter 9, the religious leaders of Jesus' days are becoming increasingly, increasingly uncomfortable with Him. They're becoming increasingly sarcastic toward Him and skeptical of Him as Jesus is establishing His authority and His credibility as the Messiah, as the sent one from God. And I think as we read Jesus' interaction with a man named Matthew and some of Matthew's friends, I think we're able to, to get to the root of this problem and to see the solution to this problem, to see how it is that we should open up our minds as believers of the gospel to process it. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. We'll read Matthew chapter 9 verses 9 through 13. And God's word says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to verse 9, it says that Jesus is coming through town and he makes eye contact, or or he approaches a man named Matthew. And Matthew is a tax collector. It is Very likely that Matthew is working as a tax collector in a tax booth that would have been right off the coast of the Sea of Galilee. As the tradesmen were going in, they would pay the taxes to the tax collector. Now you can imagine that tax collectors are never really seen as the positive people of society, right? Like none of you are fired up when the IRS calls your house. None of you look forward to a letter from Uncle Sam telling you the taxes that you owe. None of us do. Tax collectors in this day, though, were of a whole nother level. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were seen as the worst of society. You see, what the Roman Empire would do is as the Roman Empire would conquer your nation, they would then require your nation to pay taxes to the empire, to fund their architectural enterprises, to fund their military advancements. And so the way that they would collect these taxes is that they would set a rate and then they would hire somebody from within your nation they would hire in other words they would hire one of you and they would hire that person and they would give that person the support of the Roman military to enforce they would set a tax rate and then that person was actually allowed to set a tax rate that was higher than the Roman tax rate and they could just keep everything that was extra above that so the way a tax collector made his money essentially was by ripping off his his fellow countrymen in in the name of Rome with the power of Rome. And so you can imagine that if one of you were raised up, we wouldn't like you here. You would not be our favorite person. And so as we see throughout the Gospels, tax collectors are linked in a category with sinners. It's always tax collectors and sinners because they are seen with such reproach and seen so negatively. And so you can imagine that as Jesus is making his way close to the Sea of Galilee, that Matthew regrets making eye contact with him. Matthew is probably used to, as the, as the religious leaders would come through the town, he is probably very used to letting his eyes look down and avoiding eye contact at all costs so that perhaps he doesn't have to hear the rebuke or maybe even worse, he might have to see their glares down their noses at him. And so certainly, as Jesus and Matthew made eye contact, Matthew would have expected the same. He would have expected Jesus to rebuke him for his criminal ways, that he would rebuke him as a swindler, as a tax collector and a sinner. But instead, when Jesus makes eye contact with Matthew, he issues to him an authoritative call. He says, follow me. Follow me. Come with me. Go where I'm going. Be one of my students. I'm recruiting you to come and be in my inner circle. I'm recruiting you to be with me. I want to identify myself with you. Now I think maybe the most stunning part of this is to think about where Matthew is. This is not a recovering tax collector. This is not a a tax collector that is showing some sort of repentance on the front end, is it? This is a tax collector, and where is he? He's in the tax booth. This is a sinner in the midst of his sin. This is a sinner living in sin. This is a sinner in the midst of his lifestyle of sin. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I want you to follow me. I want you to come with me. What does Jesus not say? Jesus does not say, go and clean yourself up a little bit and come back and talk to me. Jesus doesn't say, go, pay back all that you've stolen from people and then come back and talk to me. Jesus doesn't say, go and make right every wrong that you've done and then come and be one of my disciples. No, what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at this man in the throes of his sinfulness and says, hey, you follow me. Come on. Don't you don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to try to make right every wrong first. You don't have to try to live righteously first. You don't have to try to work in soup kitchens and do good deeds and and earn your way into my disciples. No, you in your sin, you in the midst of your sinful lifestyle, you come. Come and follow me. This morning, I hope you understand that. That you don't have to clean up yourself to come to Jesus. Man, there are some of you, and that's where you are. There are some of you, and in your mind, you're saying, I-, I want to be with Jesus. I want to honor Him with my life. I want to know the peace that He brings and the hope that He brings that won't shame me and the joy that He may- brings that won't leave me and the significance that He brings and the security that He brings. And so what I need to do is I need to fix some things in my life first. I need to put some pieces together first. I need to move out of my boyfriend's house first. I need to quit the affair first. I need to stop looking at adult at a, a pornography first. I need to quit taking drugs first. I need to to stop first. I need to make myself better and then I will come to Jesus. But you don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. Jesus calls you from the midst of your sinfulness. Jesus isn't telling you to go to make yourself better. Jesus isn't telling you to go and make yourself worth it. Jesus is looking at you instead and just saying, come on. Come on. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It'll be just to your right. Galatians, Ephesians. Let's read verses 8 through 10 together. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 say this: For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. What does it say? Does this say, go and 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 stop looking at pornography and stop cussing. And then God will look at you and and say, okay, now you are worthy of my grace and so I will save you. No. Does it say, start coming to church every single week for a period of six months. Come to Sunday school every week for six months. Read your Bible every morning at 4.30 a.m. And then I will see your devotion and because I see your devotion, I will save you. No. No, it says it is by no works that you do. You do not earn your way to worthiness in the eyes of God. You do not earn your way to significance in the eyes of God. You do not earn your way to righteousness in that family of God. No, it is by grace that you were saved. Until the rich mercy of God, until the overwhelming grace of God comes into your life. Verse 3 says you were children of wrath. Now you don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. You don't have to get your family on track and your life on track. No, Jesus looks at you where you are and he issues to you the same call that he issues to Matthew. Come, follow me, follow me. Looking back at our text in Matthew 9, I think it's also significant to notice that he gives them the same call that he gives to the other disciples in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when, when back in Matthew chapter 4, if you were here with us, when we were preaching through that part of Matthew, you have uh, the call of, of uh, James and John and Andrew and Peter, they're fishermen, right? And they're out on their boat and he looks at them and he says, what? Follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's an unqualified call. And immediately all of these fishermen abandon their livelihoods and leave all of it behind and they immediately follow after Jesus. Well, he looks at Matthew and he says, what? The same thing. He says, follow me. Come after me. You see, there's not, there's not two different gospels here. There's not a, a gospel for fishermen and a gospel for tax collectors. That There's not a, a gospel for white, uh, uh, white-collar affluent and blue-collar poor. There, there, there's not a gospel for the homeless people and the middle-class people. There's not a gospel for those that are in the prisons and those that are in the church pews. There are not different gospels. Every person receives the same unqualified call to discipleship from Jesus. And it is this, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And and the call to follow Jesus is always a call to abandon everything else. You can't go to Jesus without leaving what's current, right? You can't go to Jesus without leaving what's behind, So it's always, I'm leaving who I was, I'm leaving what I've done, I'm leaving who I've always been to go and be someone new in Christ, to go and be someone new as a disciple of Jesus. And so, following Jesus, whether you're in the prison or in the church, wealthy or poor, Africa or America, is the same. I'm I'm leaving everything, I'm following Jesus, I'm bringing my life under His Lordship. Now this morning, here's what somebody said when I said that. I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was a catch. You told me I didn't have to clean myself up. You told me that I didn't have to clean myself up before I came to Jesus. And then, at the very same breath, you said that I had to leave everything to come and follow Jesus. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the order here. Jesus loves Matthew. Jesus wants Matthew before Matthew ever commits himself to follow him. Jesus wants Matthew before Matthew ever leaves anything. Jesus loves Matthew while Matthew is sitting in the tax booth. Jesus loves the adulterer while he's in the adulterer's bed. Jesus loves the homosexual that's in a homosexual marriage right now. Jesus loves them in their sinfulness. But the call doesn't change. Jesus doesn't, he, he always tells us what? they've always been talking about. Count the cost to come and follow me. Count the cost to come and follow me. You don't have to clean up first. You don't have to put your life in order first. But you do have to leave everything to come after me. But he loved them first. And he wanted them first. He loved them before without, they didn't have to earn his love. They didn't have to clean up for his grace. No, he was going to, that was on the table. That was there. And it's there for you. It's there for you. It's there for you that are in despair because you've never been able to measure up. It's there for you that are just absolutely hopeless because you've never been able to work your way up to godliness. Can I just tell you, nobody can. Nobody can. Only by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit of God, can you be made new. So just come and let him fix all that. Now this is where I think it gets good. That's good, but I think this is going to get better. What's the very next thing we see Jesus doing in verse 10? The very next thing that we see Jesus doing. He's hanging out at Matthew's house. It doesn't say it specifically in this Gospel, but in uh, Mark and Luke, it does say that they are at Matthew's house. See, the way Salva- the way uh, this thing kind of works, the way church is normally done now, is you come down front, you say, I want to follow after Jesus. You Check your box on the card and then everybody goes to Cracker Barrel and just don't worry about it anymore, right? Not Jesus. Jesus wasn't content to just get the decision card of Matthew. He wasn't content with just to have the commitment card of Matthew. No, Jesus' call for Matthew to come and follow him was at the same time an invitation for Matthew to come and fellowship with him. That Jesus is not just delivering Matthew from his sin, he is inviting Matthew to come and to be friends with him and to enter into fellowship and to enter into relationship with him. That He's not content just to have a check on a card. He's not content just to have uh, some kind of number that he can count. He's not content for all of that. No, Jesus is going to go and be in his house. Jesus is going to go and sit down in his house and have, have a meal with him. Twice in verse 10, it says that he's reclined at the table. Reclined at the table. This is the picture of, of you just chilling. you just hanging out, having a good time with your friends. It's, it's just everybody coming over to eat barbecue and watch the, the Alabama game, right? It's, it's everybody just coming and gathering around the table and eating some Rotel dip and some barbecue and some cheesecake and just having some good times, Right? This is what Jesus is doing. He's went into Matthew's house to recline at the table with Matthew. I want you to hear that. Jesus isn't just here for your salvation. He's here for your fellowship. Jesus is not just calling you to salvation. He's calling you to fellowship. He's calling you to friendship. He's calling you to relationship. You are not just a statistic in the house of God. You are not just a statistic in the kingdom of God. We've made church so much about numbers, and we've made it so much about what we can count, and all of that. You are not a statistic in the house of God. You are a child. You are a son. You are a daughter seated at the king's table, fellowshipping with him in relationship. He's not interested in just building a great census he's not interested in just writing a big thick book of names and what God is most glorified by is when we come by grace into his home, come by grace into his family, gather by grace around his table and enter into fellowship with him and enter into relationship with him there's a big and in our text here There's a big and. Look at it with me in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And his disciples. Guess what that means? That's us. That's us. It wasn't just Jesus going to fellowship with the sinners. Jesus is perfectly comfortable, if you read throughout the Gospels, he is perfectly comfortable being surrounded by disreputable people. Jesus is perfectly comfortable being surrounded by messy people. Jesus is perfectly comfortable being surrounded by people that got all kinds of problems and all kinds of baggage and all kinds of issues and all kinds of drama. Jesus is perfectly content being surrounded by them all the time. As a matter of fact, he seems to go out looking for them, seeking them out. But guess what? Everywhere Jesus goes, guess who else is there? His disciples are there. It's not just Jesus that's fellowshipping with sinners, it's, it's the disciples that are fellowshipping with sinners. It says that that day at Matthew's house, Matthew was not the only one there. In fact, there was a party at Matthew's house and all of the tax collectors, and, or many of the tax collectors and many of the sinners come and they gather around the table. These are people that are so sleazy that they kind of just make you feel dirty when you hang around them. You ever been around somebody like that? Like you have lunch with them you're like, I need to go take a bath. Like These are the people that Jesus is having fun with and having a meal with. These are people that are so uh, infamous for their, sin, for their sin. Their sin is so renowned that they are just called sinners. That's just who they are. That's their label in life. They are just a sinner. They're tax collectors and they're sinners. They're they're prostitutes and they're they're swindlers and they're just crooked people. And Jesus is chilling at the table with them and his disciples. Here's what that means. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow him to the same places that he goes If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow him to the same places that Jesus goes. And where does Jesus go? Jesus goes into the home of the sinners. Jesus, in fact, invites them over to the homes of his disciples. This is Matthew's house, and he's inviting all the other sinners. Come, recline with me. Come, enter into fellowship with me. Come and dine with me. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow him to the same place. Following Jesus and fellowshipping with Jesus requires us as his disciples to at the same time fellowship with sinners. It requires us to dine with sinners. That's why it's a core value here at our church. That's why of the five things that we've melted down, all the things that we're supposed to do as a church family, that's why one of them was irreducible that it had to be that we were going to dine with sinners. Because if we're going to fellowship with Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus, we at the same time are going to have to fellowship with the very messy people that Jesus fellowships with. Sinners. You see, there's no time in your life that you look more like Jesus than when you dine with sinners for the glory of God. There's no time. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' mission, all the way from Bethlehem to the cross, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, was for one purpose. Jesus came to earth, left the throne room of heaven, that he might come and dine with sinners, so that he might die for sinners and set them free. And if we, his disciples, are going to look anything like him, we must do the same thing. We must have meals with people we're not comfortable with. We must spend time around people that are going to tarnish our reputation. We must spend time around the people at school that is going to cause everybody else to think lesser of us. We must go to lunch with the people at work that everybody else looks down upon. Everybody else is annoyed by. Everybody else just thinks is disgusting. We're going to go to lunch with them. Why? These are the people that Jesus sought out. It's who that needs the doctor. It's the sick. The sick need the doctor. It's the sick that we go to with the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came to dine with messy people. Now, where in your life right now is that happening? Where in your life right now is that happening? Where in your life do you see yourself dining with sinners and seeking out sinners? Where in your life do you see yourself... Having them at your dinner table. When are you taking them out to lunch? How are you showing them true fellowship, true friendship, true relationship? Not just to do something because the church told you to, but but friendship. Those are the moments that you look like Jesus. Those are the moments that you're fellowshipping with Jesus. Let me give you a warning. It's going to be messy. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. Think about Paul. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that he was shipwrecked and that he was beaten, that he was abandoned, that he was hungry, that he was in prison. All for the sake of preaching the gospel. Think about Jesus. Jesus has disciples that doubt him and disciples that deny him, a disciple that even betrays him. I think about our brother Shabani right now. He's the pastor that we partner with in Swaziland. We were here When he was here and we were talking, he was talking about men in his church that have multiple wives, <clears throat> which is clearly against the teaching of Scripture. They come to the gospel and they come to him and say, All right, Shabani, what do we do now? We, we, can, we can divorce all of the women except our first wife and, and throw them out, and they will have no way to provide for themselves, they will have no home to live in, they will have no food to eat. Or we can deny the teachings of Scripture that it is between one man and one woman for life, and we can continue to have them as wives and care for them. How do we deal with that? Now that's messy ministry. Come on, you got an answer? I'm sitting here talking to Shibani, I'm like, bah, 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 bah. I ain't got that in my church. But ministry's messy, brothers and sisters. When you really get into true gospel ministry, and I believe that's what Jesus is modeling for his disciples here, is what true gospel ministry looks like. But when you get into true gospel ministry, there's gonna be some sleepless nights when you get into true gospel ministry with somebody and you're you're truly in fellowship with them and you're truly in friendship with them for the glory of God, there's going to be some moments in which they let you down. There's going to be moments in which they disappoint you. There's going to be some hard conversations. There's going to be some hard meals that you're going to have to have with them. There's going to be moments in which you're just going to throw up your hands and say, I just give up. I just can't handle this anymore. In fact, there's going to be times in which people are going to turn on you. There's going to be times in which people that you invested in and invested in and invested in and loved and loved and loved and fellowshiped with and fellowshiped with, eventually they're just going to come and they're just going to say, "I can't handle you anymore. Get out of my life." It's messy. But the question comes down to the question of treasure. Matthew's decision to follow after Jesus was a final one. You understand that? there was no coming back to the tax booth for Matthew what Matthew was confronted with that day at that tax booth was the question of who his treasure was or what his treasure was he had built his whole life to attain some level of prominence some level of affluence and in this moment he has to decide whether he's going to follow after a carpenter gone teacher or continue on in his affluence there was no coming back people were stacked up to be tax collectors they were rich people not only that, the ethics of following Jesus would not have allowed it. So the question is, is, do you deny everything and follow after Jesus or do you keep what you have, what you can see, what you can hold, what you can touch and tell Jesus to go play on the freeway? Matthew follows. Matthew follows. What causes a man to do that? He finds a greater treasure. He finds a greater treasure. What causes a man to be willingly embrace sleepless nights? He finds a greater treasure. What causes a woman to put herself in a situation in which other people are going to talk bad about her? She's found a greater treasure than the applause of people. You may be happy to have $5,000 in your savings account. You may have worked hard to have $5,000 in your savings account. There's not one of us that wouldn't take $5,000 out of our savings account and throw it into the river if somebody was going to pay us $5 million to do it. It's a greater treasure. We embrace messy ministry. We embrace difficult ministry. We embrace a harder life because we know that in Christ we have found a greater treasure. We know that in Christ we have found a treasure that will endure after every nation has faded away. We know that in Christ we have found a treasure that will never melt in the eyes of a man. So as we follow after Jesus and as we fellowship with messy people, we understand messy ministry. But understand, brothers and sisters, it is beautifully messy. I know for a fact that there are people in this room this morning. I've heard your testimonies. And you are here because there was somebody that refused to quit on you. You are here because there was a godly dad that refused to to stop fellowshipping with you. You're here because there was a Christian friend that just refused to stop praying for you and refused to stop being there for you. You hurt them, you wounded them, you disappointed them, and yet they persevered because they had a greater treasure. They persevered because their love for you was bigger than all that. It transcended all of that. And they pressed on and pressed on and pressed on. And today, you've got your bruises. And today, you've got your scars. But there was somebody that loved you in your sin and called you to Jesus from your sinfulness by the power of the gospel. And today, you stand here with a life that has a testimony of a beautiful mess. So it's hard It's difficult and it's disappointing, but it's worth it. It's worth it because we have found the greater treasure. It is worth it because people rarely are saved in a week. People are rarely saved in a service. People are instead saved over the course of a lifetime. I'm afraid that too often our modern Christians are used to neat, clean ministry. We want all of our outreach events to last for a couple of hours at the church that we can clean up after and then go home. We want all of our ministry to happen within a couple of hours on a Sunday so that we can compartmentalize that, check that off the list, get that out of the way, and then go about our lives and do what we want to do the rest of the week. But gospel ministry requires daily sacrifice Gospel ministry requires daily perseverance. It requires daily grind. Because it's just not that neat. It's messier than that. The Pharisees come and they ask Jesus' disciples some question, a question. And it's a question that I'm told if you understand the original Greek here is dripping with sarcasm. That they look at Jesus' disciples and they say, why are you willing to be with this guy? Why are y'all with all of these people? Do you not understand that your reputation is going to be damaged like theirs? Do you not understand that people are going to begin to look at you like a tax collector and a sinner? You see, in, in antiquity, the way that it would work is whoever it is that you ate a meal with, that was who you identified with as your social group. And this is a time when social groups and social classes were very rigid, As you have Jesus risking ceremonial defilement that he might eat with tax collectors and sinners. And then his disciples doing the same thing. And the Pharisees look and they're perplexed. They say, are you crazy? Are you crazy? You are making a decision that you cannot unmake. You are going down a path that you cannot return from. This is forever. I think it's a fair question. Why did Jesus go to these people? Why did Jesus fellowship with these people? Why do we now, as his disciples, need to fellowship with these people? Why do we need to have them into our homes? Why do we need to take them out to lunch? Why do we need to go to the ball game with them? Well, the first thing is pretty simple. Jesus doesn't leave us to have to wonder. He tells us. He says, it's those who are well who have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, the reason I'm with them the reason I'm eating a meal with them, the reason I'm fellowshipping with them, the reason I'm in a, in a friendship with them is because they're sick. They need a doctor. See, what I think we see in Jesus' life, and I think this, is, this speaks so much to the way I introed the sermon about Planned Parenthood and how we're supposed to see the world, is Jesus saw past the symptom into the disease. Jesus saw past the symptom into the heart of the sickness itself we always focus on the symptoms we always focus on the pain that we see we always focus on the things that make us angry the things that bother us the things that violate our our conscience the things like planned parenthood and abortion and homosexuality and and all of these other things and it's not that we should not focus on those things but those things are have an underlying cause those things have an underlying issue they are symptoms of a greater disease and so Jesus is able to, to cut through those symptoms and to see the disease as it truly is. But not me. In my life, what I typically find out is that I'm really quick to decide that someone is not worthy of Jesus. I find it really easy for me to look at somebody in their sin and to see all the symptoms of their life, to see all the problems that they've got, to see all the issues that they've got, to see how hard-hearted they are, to see the wickedness in their life, the blatant evil maybe even in their life, and just to decide they aren't worthy of Jesus. And so I don't fellowship with them. I don't have, I'm not friends with them. I don't dine with them. But not Jesus. Jesus. Jesus cuts through the symptom and gets to the heart. And when he gets to the heart of the sickness, what does he experience? And and obviously this happens all at one time for Jesus, but I'm trying to to, uh, flesh it out for us. Mercy, right? Notice mercy is at the center of what we're talking about. This is how he rebukes the Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, godliness is the opposite of what the Pharisees have. God, the way the, the Pharisees were is the Pharisees were, uh, had a lot of knowledge. They had a lot of head knowledge about the truth, but they had never applied it to their hearts. They were filled with all of these religious rituals, and yet they had no mercy. And Jesus says, We need to flip that over. And so I think what we see in Jesus' life is a great deal of mercy. This is what happens when you, when you cut through the symptoms, and you can actually see the heart of the person, and you can see the pain of the person. And you can see the difficulty of the person. And you can see the baggage of the person and the history of the person. And you can realize that they are no different than you are by God's grace. They're no different than you are. What happens is is you experience mercy. Mercy. I have a friend who he had always grown up and idolized his dad. He and his dad had always been close. And his dad was his hero. And his dad had always been a patient, soft-spoken, just easy-to-like guy. My friend said that one day his dad just snapped. He said it it was like a a switch flipped in his dad, and his dad was just no longer the man that he had always known. His dad began to berate his wife and belittle his wife. He began to exasperate his children. He would go into just, just fits and just get angry and begin cursing and things that were completely uncharacteristic of him from what my friend had known him his whole life to be. And then he began to have headaches. So they took him to the doctor, and it turned out he had a brain tumor. And the way that the brain tumor was positioned, it just so happened to be positioned on his brain in such a way that caused him to be go into violent mood swings and to have all of these issues that he was having. And so sure enough, they removed the tumor, and, and it all went away. But my friend, as he's, as he's describing that to you, his, the tone of the story will change the way that mine did right there. Because what happened? He saw the symptom and it made him angry. He saw the symptom and he couldn't understand it. He saw the symptom and he said, I just want to punch my dad. Until I knew there was an underlying disease. Until I knew that there was an underlying cause behind what he was doing. That this wasn't really all him. Right? The reason we have no mercy is that we focus on the symptoms. The reason that we have no mercy is because we we see the person at school, and we see what they represent, and we see how they live, and it disgusts us. The reason we have no mercy on the people that we work with is that we see their lifestyle, and we know it's not right, and it violates our conscience, and it angers us, and it repulses us. But if we could get through the symptoms to the heart of the disease, rather than being repulsed, we might have mercy. Is mercy hard for you? Is mercy hard for you? It was for the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw what everybody else couldn't do and what they did. The gospel sees what it will do in you. The Pharisees looked down their nose, belittling everyone that they came into contact with. The gospel reaches out its hand and calls you out of the miry clay. Pharisees excluded other people so that they could stay with their group of of intellectual high lives. The gospel breaks through isolation and reaches its hand out to every sinner that's willing to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. Let me ask you, are you more like a Pharisee or Jesus? Sobering question. But examine the mercy in your life. Examine the lack of willingness to go into dying with sinners, to fellowship with sinners. Look in your life and see if there's mercy there. Because it may be that you are more like a Pharisee than you are like Jesus. And fellowshipping with Jesus will require you to dine with sinners. So, 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 Jesus saw through the, the symptom into the disease, it, seeing into the z- disease, moved him with mercy. But then he goes, and mercy without power is no good. It doesn't matter if I have mercy toward a homeless person if they don't have, if I don't have the resources to give them the food to meet their need. So, lastly, Jesus goes to them because he has the cure. He has the cure. We go to them not just for the sake of going to them. We go to them because we have the cure. We have the cure and we know that there is no case of sin that is so severe that the gospel cannot set them free. That the gospel cannot make them well. And so we as Christians, as salt and light, go into the darkness of this world and we fellowship with sinners and we dine with sinners. Not just for the sake of doing so, but that they might have hope in the gospel too that they might be called to, be, uh, to repentance in the gospel too, that they might be called to follow Jesus and to fellowship with Jesus and to enter into friendship with Jesus. That they might too be a, a son or a daughter at his table. In your life, who have you written off as not being worthy of Jesus? Who in your life have you been? are you unwilling right now to invite into your home Perhaps that should be the very first person that you call when we leave this morning. Perhaps that should be the first conversation you have at work on Monday morning. This morning, the way that I want you to apply the sermon is I want you to open your bulletin. Some of you, this will be the first time you've ever opened our bulletin. <laughs> yeah, I know. And in the bulletin, there is an insert. There's three different pages. One says, I will pray with, one says, I will share with, and the one I will ask my pastors to pray with. They can be the same three names. But as a church, one of our core values, and the core value in which I think we are the weakest, is in dining with sinners. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to write names there. Some of you, this is terrifying. And I'm going to ask you just to begin by, by just praying every single day for the same three people that you know are without Christ. Pray for them. God is sovereign in salvation and will call them out of their sin. Pray that the Lord would deliver them. Pray that the Lord would, would send the church. Say, pray that the Lord would send Christian friends. Pray that the Lord would give you the boldness to share. The second one is, is I will share with. Some of you, it's time to stop praying. All of us are responsible for sharing the gospel. All of us are responsible for taking the good news to someone. So I want you to write, it can be the same three names. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going I'm to have them over for the purpose of bringing God glory in their lives and for the gospel. And write it there. And then the last one is a perforated sheet. I'm going to ask you to tear that out and write those same three names and come and pray over them at the altar and to leave them here. To come and, and lay them on the altar and pray that this would be a watershed moment in your faith. To pray that the Lord would already be preparing their hearts for the gospel to come. That the Spirit would already begin convicting them. That the Spirit would already, commit, uh, already begin to draw them. That the Lord would give you boldness. That he would not let you back down. That he would not let you cower away. But instead that he would call you to action. I'm going to ask you to write those three names and bring them to the altar and to lay them there and pray over them. And then to leave them there. And our staff, over the next several weeks, are going to be praying over those with you. And we're going to pray over the same names that you have. And I believe that God will answer us. And I believe that God will hear us. Because God loves to fellowship with sinners for his own glory. Let me pray for us.